This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. I'm one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and I've got to say it wouldn't be Literary Treks if I'm not joined by Dan Gunther, the Nanook of the North. How's it going, Dan? <laughs> uh, cold. <laughs> I say that a lot. <laughs> oh. But uh, no, it, it's it's really good to be here, of course. And uh, yeah, it's it's gotten a little chilly up here again, and might be to might be here to stay now. So try not to be bitter about it, though. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, we joined you in the cold. Uh, you know, it, it's been in the twenties at night and and barely in the forties, and so yeah, it's chilly. But hey, it's it's yeah, it's what do you expect? It's uh, almost <laughs> December, so. Uh, yeah. And here we're hitting uh, Thanksgiving as we record. So, I mean, that that's just kind of the weather that you expect. And it makes it feel holiday-ish, you know? So yeah, it makes you want to stop by a Starbucks at any moment and just pick up some sort of spiced latte. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll be thinking of you guys with your Thanksgiving off while I'm at work, unfortunately. <laughs> I'll be thankful that you're the one working and I'm not. <laughs> That's me. Fair enough. I would do the same where I am. But hey, shoes, you already so. had Joel's Thanksgiving in, in Canada, so. That's true. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, Dan, I, I got to say, we got a lot to be thankful for with the news that we had this week uh, here with Star Trek books. And uh, we have two new covers to judge as well as their blurb. So uh, what was that first cover, Dan? Well, uh, our first cover, we've got a, an amazing, gorgeous original series uh, cover from Dayton Ward here for his new novel, Elusive Salvation, uh, coming next year. This one I'm really excited about because it's a sequel to one of my favorite novels from a couple of years ago, From History's Shadow, by, also by Dayton Ward. Uh, really, really, really great story and really excited to be getting a follow up to that one. Yeah, I got to say it's it's fantastic and the cover here is just beyond beautiful. I mean, oh yeah. It has this wonderful sci-fi quality to it. It doesn't not in a bad way, but it doesn't even look like a Star Trek book. Mm -hmm. It looks like a great sci-fi mystery story from something like you might see on an Asimov novel or, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I mean exactly, just yeah. any other great sci-fi author. And what a great cover for Dayton Ward's new Elusive Salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the colors, that that blue is really, really striking. Yes. I just think, you know, on a bookshelf, that's going to look really incredible. Well, even the characters on it, these alien characters and their uh, uniforms and the weapons they're carrying, their ship, you know, crashed into the, the Arctic there. And it's just, I love it. I really love it. So, it, Dan, we got a blurb with, with this one. Uh, what did it say? The Arctic Circle, 1845. Escaping the tyranny under which their people have lived for generations, aliens from a distant planet crash land on Earth's inhospitable frozen wastes. Surviving the harsh conditions will pose a challenge, but over time the aliens will migrate to more populated areas, with decades passing as they work to conceal their presence from their former oppressors who continue to hunt them at any cost. San Francisco, 2283. 
When a mysterious craft is detected entering the solar system, Admiral James Kirk is dispatched by Starfleet to confront the vessel. He meets with an emissary from the Iramal, a previously unknown alien race who have come in search of their brothers and sisters thought to have gone missing in this area of space centuries earlier. Having recently thrown off the last chains of subjugation by another species, the Patean, they now believe that their lost people hold the key to saving their entire race from eventual extinction. New York, 1970. Roberta Lincoln, young protege of the mysterious agent Gary Seven, is shocked when she receives the oddest request for help from the future. I'm shocked, shocked that this is <laughs> happening. Oh, goodness, I can just hear it from Casablanca. I'm shocked to find out that there's gambling going on in here. Uh, sir, your winnings. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no, this one looks this very exciting. Uh you know, and, and very much like you said, in the same way that From History's Shadow had a very unorthodox cover. This one, yeah, it doesn't look like Star Trek. It kind of looks like 50s sci-fi almost. Uh, War of the Worlds style look to it. I don't, I'm, I'm really excited for this one. Yeah, I am too. And on top of that, we got the cover and blurb for Live by the Code, which is the next book in the Star Trek Enterprise Rise of the Federation series by Christopher L. Bennett and another just great cover and no enterprise on there uh, obviously no mm. endeavor no you know none of that we've got some amazing andorian and klingon ships on this cover it's awesome yeah i am wondering if the andorian ship is that one um and i can't remember the name of it but basically the name when translated into english is enterprise that from, would be uh, really funny honestly. i love that um <laughs> but this one sounds great it says that admiral jonathan archer has barely settled in as starfleet chief of staff when new crises demand his attention the Starfleet Task Force, commanded by Captain Malcolm Reed, continues its fight against the deadly wear technology, but one of the Task Force ships is captured, its Andorian crew imprisoned by an interstellar partnership that depends on the wear for its prosperity. Worse, the partnership has allied with a renegade Klingon faction, providing it with wear drone fleets to mount an insurrection against the Klingon Empire. Archer sends Captain DePaul and the Endeavor to assist Reed in his efforts to free the captured officers, but he must also keep an eye on the Klingon border, for factions within the Empire blame Starfleet for providing the wear threat and seek to take revenge. Even the skill and dedication of the captains under Archer's command may not be enough to prevent the outbreak of the Federation's first war. Yeah, this is another one. Um, sounds very, very exciting. Uh, I, I I love that kind of hook right at the end of the Federation's first war. You know, kind of really puts puts in mind you know what big stakes there are at the at the this the beginning of the Federation kind of thing. So very excited for this one as yeah, well. Yeah, that's very true. And and we know that there was a lead up to war and then a war with the uh, the. Four years war that uh, Axanar will be covering uh, in their film. So, I mean, uh, this is really interesting. I'm really excited to see this. And I'm kind of wondering where the Enterprise books might end. Do you think they might end with, you know, Archer being made Federation president? Or do we just follow this as far as we can and people keep buying them? I don't know. That's a really great question. Uh, I think that would be kind of a natural ending point but i mean you know maybe they'll keep on going past that maybe we'll get you know some of archer's tenure as president or maybe we'll never get there and just keep getting these adventures uh with him as you know acting as an admiral in starfleet for a while uh either way i'd, I'd be excited i i'm really enjoying this series and i hope it continues for a long time me too i i'm i'm very much enjoying this and um i do have to say though there there's a part of me that really does miss the enterprise i, I just love the <laughs> nx01 and you know mm -hmm. it, it seems as though the refit nx01 barely got a life uh and uh maybe part of that is is that it was involved with um the the romulan war and we just 
you know, that got cut short, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I just kind of miss there being an Enterprise round, but these books are fantastic, and I, I can't wait to see what happens in this one because uh, it they really just haven't disappointed at this point. Yeah, for sure. Well, kind of another really interesting piece of news came out recently, and that's uh, the Star Trek Prometheus trilogy, uh, which is actually going to be coming from CrossCult, which is the German language license holders for Star Trek fiction. And so far to this date, all they've done is um, German translations of current novels, but it was just announced and the covers have been revealed for uh the Star Trek Prometheus trilogy, which will be the first uh, German language original Star Trek fiction, which is really kind of interesting and and really exciting. It's it's kind of cool to see Star Trek moving beyond what we normally think of as as how it's marketed and presented, and really opening up some new um, markets and stuff. Well, you know, I have to say that the German market for star trek books is probably the strongest next to the united states and mm, uh, you definitely. know i i think we would all agree a majority of the time honestly that the cross cult covers have been a rival and sometimes the winners of you know uh, the the contest of which cover is better which which cover mm-hmm. wore it best and the fact that they're just getting their own book series uh, i i think it's um you know it's about dang time uh yeah i agree so yeah. i'm really excited for them and i'm, I'm just wondering uh, dan does this mean that we'll be getting a prometheus series at all uh, but translated from german i don't know uh that would be pretty cool um a lot of times on the uh trek bbs i've noticed uh german readers really anticipating getting uh, the novels, looking forward to reading them, and now kind of the shoes on the other foot here. Maybe the English-speaking world will be really excited to get uh, get a look at these books, you know, after they've initially been released in German. So, yeah, it could be very interesting. I, I certainly hope. I mean, more st- the more Star Trek, the better. So I'd be on board for that. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Dan. I, I can't imagine um, us not getting this at some point. So I, I think it is really fun, though, and I think the German fans definitely uh, deserve this for their dedication to the Star Trek books. And, and honestly, um, they've really kept Trek alive big time in Europe and with uh, their love of Star Trek, uh, as we know from Trekkies, <laughs> as well <laughs> as just their um, consummate consumption of Star Trek books. And so I'm really excited <laughs> for them. Um, yeah, definitely. We do have uh, some last bit of news that uh, Doug Drexler dropped on his Facebook page saying that he has been commissioned to do the covers for the TNG Prey trilogy. And with that spanning the 24th century, I can't wait to see what he comes up with. Definitely. Yeah, Doug Drexler is, you know, really known for his gorgeous uh, ship shots and that sort of thing. I mean, the Vanguard novel covers and the Fall covers all done by drexler and uh you know i really can't wait to see uh what we get here because yeah his covers are always a treat well yeah this is going to be great and uh, you know next year is going to be a fantastic year to celebrate star trek so i can't wait to read all of these books and so well dan before we jump into the feature where we are going to be talking about the next book in the mere anarchy series uh the blood dimmed tide Tell everybody where they can find us uh, online and and about the network a little bit. Well, Matthew, uh, you can find us online at trek.fm. And like you say, we're just one of many podcasts on that wonderful network. We've got shows spanning every corner of the Star Trek universe. And of course, beyond that with the 602 Club, which you, of course, host. A wonderful addition to Trek FM. And really, you know, being able to cover every part of the Star Trek universe and beyond, there's really nothing about Star Trek that you can't listen to on Trek FM. Well, and it's, it is great, Dan. You're totally right. Um, you can find us on Trek.fm. That's our own website. And you can also find us on iTunes, of course. We're a feature provider at iTunes.com slash Trek.fm. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek.fm. We're on Twitter at 
at Trek FM. We're on Instagram now, so check us out at under Trek FM. And then we're on our listeners only discussion group for all of our shows for the network and the Babel Conference. That's on Facebook there, so just type Babel into the search field. Or you can go to the website and click discussion on any of the menu bars. And of course, for literary checks, we do have something special, Dan. Uh, because we're a book podcast and a comics podcast, we are on Goodreads. So you can find all the books that we're going to be covering there on Goodreads, uh, all the books we have covered. We've got some great discussions going on there. So make sure to check that out as well. Well, Dan, it's crazy to think uh, that we only have one more book in the Mere Anarchy series after this. And so this is the penultimate story. Uh, this one's called The Blood-Dimmed Tide. And I have to say, um, this this series I feel like is continuing just to get better and better, which, you know, as you read a series, that's a lot of fun. Definitely, yeah. Um, reading through this book, uh, as we kind of talked about on the other side of the page, uh, it it really seems to me to be the best written of these books so far. Uh, and, you know, everything's kind of been building up to this point. And yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I thought that the story came across very, very well, kind of with the story kind of taking on larger galactic import than it has in the past and kind of the planet Mystico really kind of becoming a focus for this part of space in this story. Well, yeah, it, the the planet actually, you know, with all that it's been through, it's really coming into its own at this point. And, you know, one of the, the coolest parts about uh, this, this planet is, you know, because they have been involved in so much of the interstellar politics around here, they've done this really neat thing and they've created this research lab on the moon that still orbits their planet where they had originally had a lunar colony and Kirk and crew had saved that lunar colony once the pulse had hit but they went back and rebuilt that into a research facility and it was funded by the government as just a way for people to come, brightest minds from around the world. It's almost like Mystico's Tomorrowland. <laughs> and all the brightest and best were supposed to come. There weren't any restrictions. Uh, there were there was no oversight. And they were just allowed to be creative and think of ways of improving, one, the, the, the plight of the Mystico people. But also just the galaxy at large you know um so it the, your imagination is kind of endless of, of what you're trying to create to better people's lives throughout the galaxy and so it's really interesting to see the focus that they're planning for the future they're not just trying anymore to survive but they're also trying to make a better future and really you know as much as this story will reference things from our past because of its connection with it being so close to Star Trek Six, this is six months before that film happens. Mm -hmm. What I'm really seeing here is is the way in which this culture puts um, an importance on making sure that they're not just trying to live now, but create a better future for their children by investing in research like this, uh, which, as we've talked about many times in this show, uh, very much in the same way that we used to do with something like NASA, uh, mm -hmm. but not so much anymore because it, it almost feels like we're just trying to survive now. Yeah, it was a really interesting aspect of the story. And, you know, I really like that whole idea, you know, both the government of Mystico and the people that are against the government here that steal this weapon, they both kind of want the same thing. And that's, you know, Mystico to take a larger uh, role in the galact in galactic affairs and that sort of thing. Uh, both very different um, paths to doing that, though, with, uh, you know, one group kind of wanting them to become conquerors and, and really kind of be aggressive and, you know, really using that... Uh, that kind of narrative of no longer wanting, wanting to be the refugees of the galaxy, but wanting to really kind of 
make their own destiny in that sort of way. And yeah, one thing that was really interesting about that, uh, about the Discovery Center was the lack of oversight, which I thought was really interesting that kind of led to this whole thing starting off the way it did. Uh, that really surprised me as kind of a choice of the government here. And that was one thing in this story I don't feel we got a lot of real explanation about as to why there was absolutely no kind of checks and balances against that whatsoever. I don't know if you got that same impression as well, but I was I was like, really, Raya? I, you didn't look in on them from time to time and say, hey, what you doing here? Yeah, I think it's a good time to talk about that. It, it, the oversight issue, and this is where it really kind of referenced the Tomorrowland, if you saw that film from this year. And if you haven't, I recommend everybody go and see Tomorrowland. It's fantastic. Uh, check it out. It's already on home viewing. Uh, thank you, Disney, for supporting this podcast this week. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I think I understood the idea behind it, which was to allow creative people to be creative without bureaucracy getting in the way. Mm. But, yeah, you, you, you can't just let anything happen unchecked. You know, no matter what it is, no, no matter how good it is, things always mm. need checks and balances. It's the same thing. I mean, that's why in the United States we have three parts of our government. So things sh can't just happen unilaterally. It's supposed to take a long time to be able to change the course of the future of the country because making massive change like that should be put to a lot of thought. And the mm -hmm. same thing with, with um, you know, any kind of creation that you're doing of any kind of technology or anything like that, all of those things... It, we're talking about really important stuff, what you could create in the 23rd century. Even with the oversight for Starfleet, the Genesis project, in the wrong hands, is turned into a weapon. Not only that, mm -hmm. but there obviously wasn't enough oversight because they used protomatter, which has been known to be unstable, as we know. So, um <laughs> You know, this is the reason that these things happen is because it's not just bureaucrats or something getting in the way. It's for the safety and security of the people, for what's being created and why and all of that. And scientific and creative types can be so locked into one form of the way they view things that they're they're blinded to seeing some other ramifications. Mm -hmm. It'd be like, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project being done by private citizens and the government saying, oh, that sounds fine. Go to town. Let exactly. Us know what you come up with. Yeah. Create an <laughs> atom bomb. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, ex yeah. No. I, I understood the reason for wanting that to happen because you want to have the most creative freedom to think of the the best way and, and the most interesting ways and, and the most out-of-the-box thinking can happen like that because there isn't any oversight. You know, you're not having to ask for permission for every single little thing, but there's a reason for constructive oversight for anything that we do, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, and there's there's too intrusive of oversight and, and then there's just none at all and that's almost equal just to have any <laughs> absolutely yeah no like you say I, I really liked the idea behind that but yeah without the oversight it just we we see it kind of run amok here and you know it really does lead to this crisis you mm -hmm. know um it, it's kind of like you know no government regulation or control on on you know substances or something like that you know anything like that can kind of just run, run amok. And, uh, you know, there, are, there are reasons that, you know, the government keeps an eye on, I don't know, plutonium. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, hard drugs. I mean, yeah, same kind of thing. Um, you know, there, there's a reason for reasonable government oversight of important mm -hmm. things. Um, 
There's over-regulation and whatnot, which kills things as well. So finding that balance is always tough. But I I thought that that was interesting because it really led into an interesting part there with Mystica. We're talking about bureaucracy then on top of that and how somebody said something really important in, in the story that bureaucracies tend to have to justify their existence. So they tend to grow. And it's one of the reasons that, say, in in especially in America and I don't know around the world, people get frustrated when government gets so big, it becomes so bogged down. I mean, this is the best way. Think of the prequels in Star Wars and the bureaucracy and, and running a government that has all of this attached to it. There's just so much wading through it and and you begin to have to continue to justify your existence by adding more reasons for you to exist you create more Mm. programs and make people more dependent on you and so i loved that this was an issue that they were dealing with as they were watching their you know coming into their own but then having these problems with bureaucracy and oversight and trying to figure out how all that works and so really fascinating uh, i think uh in the way that the problems happening on Mystico are strangely, as we're reading this, really mirroring a lot of the things I'm seeing as I live here in the States. Mm-hmm. Dan, what did you think of the whole part of this book where we really are setting up the milieu of the undiscovered country? Yeah, this, this was really cool because, uh, you know, in Star Trek VI, we learn that Spock has been negotiating or, you know, representing the Federation to the Klingon Empire and kind of setting up these peace talks between uh, the Federation and the Klingons. And we really get to see that kind of being set in motion here. Uh, and I thought that was really cool to kind of tie that into this story. And especially with, you know, the aim of this miniseries being... Uh, celebration of the 40th anniversary of Star Trek that was really you know kind of the the crowning achievement the the end movie of the series was you know these historic foes finally coming together and you know uh, declaring peace and to kind of see that start to play out here is is really cool and really makes this story feel like a part of the overarching overarching narrative of star trek and uh an interesting choice i thought was uh bringing back the admiral morrow character from star trek 3 who we hadn't seen and who had been replaced by admiral cartwright by star trek 4 and we find out that he's retired and has kind of made it his mission as a private citizen to um you know, to try and work on peace with the Klingons, kind of reminding me a little bit about, uh, of, you know, former presidents and prime ministers and stuff that have gone on to do things like that, or, or private citizens that have worked to make the world better, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter or, uh, Bill Gates even, uh, in their retirement kind of doing philanthropic, uh, acts and that sort of thing. So I found his character very interesting here. Yeah, I really liked that that character. Um, I also really liked the way that he interacted with Spock. And it turns out in the story that Spock saves his life and he is the admiral who turned down, you know, uh, Kirk going to get Spock's body on Genesis. And if Spock hadn't been rescued by Kirk by disobeying those orders... Morrow would have most likely found himself dead. And so it was just this really wonderful sense of irony that you got. And they even mentioned that. I'm so glad we're both here to understand the irony of the situation, you know. Um, (laughs) And, you know, Spock has a, a really great phrase, too, about this whole idea of of not necessarily completely understanding why people get so hung up on on things like that and 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 holding a that grudge that Morrow thinks that Spock might be able to have against him um because mm-hmm. you know as Spock being Vulcan he's able to look at the data that Morrow had and he says 
you made the decision that seemed best to you because of the information you had. You had no idea. How would you even? Nobody had any idea of this. Mm-hmm. And and what Kirk was saying to you, of course, it kind of came off crazy. So I just loved the, you know, the the wonderful wisdom and logic of Spock working together, and the way that his character has grown so much from, and it's referenced the the motion picture to now. Uh, it's a beautiful progression of that Spock character. And, and it's, yeah, Admiral Morrow was able to actually really make us understand how much Spock has really changed. Definitely. That's uh, that's something that I really enjoyed in this book was, uh, you know, Spock's response to Morrow when he, when he comes back with that, that regret and guilt was really interesting because it, it makes you realize that as humans, uh, we carry around a lot of really irrational guilt sometimes, you know, where, you know, we'll we'll feel bad for, for doing something that was done, like Spock said, completely without the knowledge of what would happen or, or you know, some arbitrary reason why that turned out badly that had nothing to do with our original decision, but we still, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I apologize. And, and you know, it's something that we humans do a lot. And uh, myself, definitely a lot that when I was reading that really made me realize, wow, you know, we humans really are silly sometimes. <laughs> like, uh, you know, from Spock's perspective, which is, you know, the ultimate dispassionate view of it, you know, that makes no sense. Admiral Morrow made the best decision he could have, and Spock, in his position, probably would have made the exact same decision if he, you know, came from the same uh, position and, and beliefs that Morrow came from. So, you know, it, to him, it's, you know, well, that's ridiculous. Why would you apologize for that? And uh, I, I think there's kind of a good lesson in there. <laughs> Well, and what I love about this book, too, is, I mean, it's setting up my favorite Star Trek movie, and it's doing it, I think, really well. Um, I do one quick question. What the heck is Savick doing on this ship? <laughs> well, where's Valeris? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, if you watch Star Trek VI, I, it seems like Valeris came on board right at the start of Star Trek okay. VI there, because Spock's kind okay. of introducing her to Kirk, so... Uh, yeah. No, I thought that was really cool to see Savick here, which I think really crosses over because you know if it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Howard Weinstein, the uh, the writer of this, did a lot of the DC comics that were set on the Enterprise A during this period, and Savick was a main character in those comics for a lot of them. Uh, so basically, the the way the continuity in in that part of uh, Star Trek works is that Savick came back and, and became a crew member on the Enterprise in between Star Trek 4 and 6 in there somewhere. I guess she skipped Star Trek 5. I'm not sure how that worked exactly. But, uh, you know, so I, I thought that was really cool to see her there. And um, it kind of, uh, you know, we're going to see that again in Greg Cox's ebook coming out next year too, kind of set during this era He's borrowing that idea that Savick's a crew member on the Enterprise at this time. So, you know, that's 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 kind of a neat idea from the comics there that I'm glad they brought over here because, uh, you know, I'll be frank. I love Savick. I think she's a great character. Uh, I would have liked to have seen more of her in this book. Um, she was kind of generic science officer for most of the time, but she had a couple good moments that I enjoyed. Uh, more Savick, the better. I really like her. Well, I, I like her as well. And I think that's one of the things that uh, most people would have just thought, like, wait, wasn't Valer, was she not on the Enterprise? You know, because it's not completely clear in Star Trek Six exactly where she's come from, other than the fact that Spock knows her and he intends for her to replace him. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah, it's kind of weird because I, I feel like I got the feeling from that movie that somehow Valeris is... She must have been training or somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, that's a that I love having Savick back, and I think it's really interesting. So I'm glad that they put that in there, and it works, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And it makes sense, you know. Spock was gone for it seems like a, a while, 
you know, at least six months or so before this started uh, with all of his work behind the scenes for the Federation president. So I love that. And of course, the great mention of Curzon Dax being involved in all of this <laughs> as well. So lots and lots of fun happening in this book and many great references going on. So it, it was really fantastic. And then on top of that, you know, the idea of the Klingon Empire as a metaphor for anything where a a society has become a facade of itself, just mm-hmm. a shell of its former self. And, you know, it, it what's interesting is that you know, obviously it stood in for the USSR back in the day. But the wonderful thing is, is that we continue to see this happen throughout history. So it's not just the USSR, even though that was so important at the time the film was released. It could even be our country, the United States, or anybody's country, if if they're not careful. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the great warning of the, the empire here as the metaphor for what happens for when your priorities are out of whack. Definitely, yeah. Uh you know, in Star Trek VI, they mentioned that the Klingon Empire's military spending has just kind of gone out of control and, you know, lacks safety regulations and lacks uh, infrastructure, which leads to the destruction of Praxis. Uh, and we really see that here. We see that, for example, this battle base that is to be this, you know, much feared next great weapon of the Klingon Empire that you know, is this mobile command unit that that houses a fleet of birds of prey. I mean, this thing's supposed to be, you know, the military might of the Klingon Empire made manifest here. And, you know, when we get aboard it in this story, we find out that, you know, the decks are crumbling. (laughs) Like, they're literally falling apart. They're going to be installed on Tuesday. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and... uh, yeah, this this thing, it really reminded me um, in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, there's this, you know, beautiful, tall building that's supposed to be this gorgeous hotel that's kind of like the crown jewel of, of showing the world how prosperous and wonderful North Korea is. But then you get inside and it's been unfinished for, I think, upwards of like 13 years now. Uh there's there's whole parts of it that are just an empty shell like a facade on the outside but inside there's just nothing there and you know it reminded me of of that it reminded me of like the famed Potemkin villages uh which were you know might be apocryphal but they were just you know facades of whole villages and harbor fronts put up to impress Catherine the Great as she toured the the toured Crimea and the Ukraine and um you know it it really is nothing like <laughs> they have a bunch of uh resources to kind of make something look good but when you peel back the layers you see that you know the klingon empire is in decline and it's really struggling here and this was just kind of another way that it was a lead up to what eventually happens in star trek 6 but no dan i think you're so right and i mean god it, it, we even do this with ourselves um the idea of like uh, Facebook page. We were talking about this on the other side of the page. Uh, you know, uh, that we would make ourselves to be something that we're not. Uh, the, the clothes we wear to hide or tuck or whatever to make ourselves look better. The, you know, makeup we might put on is it, people. Uh, just the masks that we wear. So, I mean, the metaphor goes really far. And absolutely. I, I, what I love is that you can apply that to a lot of different areas of life, and it's just as true in all of them. And so it really is powerful. Uh, so I, I, I love this story for helping to lay the groundwork for where the Klingon Empire is, uh, and that, you know, Praxis is their Chernobyl and their tipping mm-hmm. point. Like, it's just the end. It, they the the straw that broke the Klingons back so um and it really leads us to an issue in this book because it it, it's here and Captain Kirk's prejudice with the Klingons and I Mm. wanted to know what your take was because I have some thoughts but I kind of wonder what you thought um because here Kirk 
very much is in the same mindset that we see him in Star Trek VI. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is something that I mean. Star Trek VI is still one of my favorite Star Trek films, uh, but one thing that always just kind of bugged me just a little bit about it was uh, the way Captain Kirk was written to have such you know overwhelming prejudice against the Klingons. Uh, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically of the infamous line, you know, let them die. And, uh, you know, even William Shatner had a problem with how Kirk was written in the undiscovered country. And, you know, when that kind of came up in this story, when whenever Kirk kind of had this overriding hatred of the Klingons, uh, you know, it just kind of pulled me out of the story just a little bit because that was something that I just always had a, just the slightest problem with. Um, now, I mean, you know, it is keeping it very consistent with the undiscovered country. And uh, of course, you know, it's understandable. Kirk lost his son to the Klingons. There would be, um, you know, a lot of feeling there and a lot of reasons for him feeling that way. But I just, for example, I recently watched the original series episode Day of the Dove when that energy creature is affecting how they think. And Kirk Kirk has this wonderful line and it's something along the lines of, is it possible this thing is making us feel even something as horrible as race hatred? Like it's just this totally unthinkable thing that a human being of the 23rd century would experience. And you know, to kind of juxtapose that with how Kirk acts in this book and in Star Trek VI, it always just pulls me out uh, just a little tiny bit. Not enough to, you know, really make me dislike it, but, you know, just enough to make me a little bit annoyed with how he was written in Star Trek VI and how they ha- how uh, Howard Weinstein has to kind of keep it consistent uh, to carry it through there. But a very minor complaint. It always reminds me of the way that experience tempers or changes our views. And mm. for me, it always seemed like, and minus Star Trek V, which is a strange anomaly, but I'll say that if you think about that, the Klingons that, that are in that film are kind of laughable. Almost mm. even for Kirk, you know, like, it's Claw and he's just a, boob like an incompetent boob you know and and then you have that old general like that's you know that that's not a real representation of the Klingons that Kirk has been facing his entire career and then of course uh, the the last main experience that we know about chronologically before that is Kirk losing his son to one Mm -hmm. and for no good reason you know really Kirk's son is being killed for no good reason either so it's understandable I think for Kirk to to have this hatred of those Klingon bastards that killed his son um Mm. and because I think for a while Klingons had earned Kirk's begrudging respect but when they went that far it was just like uh, it, it, it was too much um and what I like about the storyline for me in, in Star Trek Six is that by having Kirk feel that way, it allows us as the audience to have something to learn through Kirk, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that Kirk's not f- infallible, you know. I, I think that's nice to see that our heroes, there are things where they still have to grow too, and all of these characters have. And, and I think race issues between this, the, the different species of aliens around across the galaxy. Uh, you know, TOS is is full of things like that. You know, with Bones and Spock, it's 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 playful banter, but I think Spock in the original series specifically thought of himself as better than McCoy. And his logic mm-hmm. was better than McCoy's. And he he would probably just say that straight out. Yeah, I think I'm better than Dr. McCoy with my logic. I think it's the tempering of experience with McCoy, as we even see in this book when he talks about McCoy. Uh, it you find a way to understand a new frame of reference, you know, and a new way to see mm-hmm. things. And so, 
uh, for me, it, it never really, it never really bothered me that Kirk felt like that. It felt like, um, it felt like within Kirk's wheelhouse to feel like that afterwards, you know, because of the mm-hmm. kind of character that he is. I feel like Kirk's a guy who just kind of holds grudges, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> I, and and I really do appreciate what it did, the, the purpose it served within the story of Star Trek VI. And, and you know, it is very much appreciated and it's it's well done there. Uh, I just, the one thing that, that just always kind of twinges me is I never ever, I never really thought Kirk would blame an entire race or an entire species for the actions of the Klingons who killed his son. I would expect that he would hate those Klingons and Kruge and his crew. But I, I you know, if, if you, you replace that with any other race or species, which, you know, aliens in Star Trek are all, are generally... Um, metaphors for how we think of different races and different people of Earth. And if you replace that with, you know, a race on Earth, I Kirk never struck me as the kind of person that would make that kind of leap. Uh, again, you know, it's not it's not the biggest thing that sticks in my craw ever. I still, like I said, Star Trek VI is, you know, top two or three Star Trek movies to me. I absolutely love that film. Uh, it's just always something that just pulls me out of the narrative just a millimeter or a, a eighth of an inch for <laughs> our American <laughs> listeners. <laughs> what was, um, you know, lastly, uh, something that stuck out to me in the book was this idea of like frustration acting out. And on Mystico, this has been happening and it really parallels our world today with the demonstrations that we see about people so frustrated about inaction or things taking too long to change that they just react. And whether that's mass demonstrations or violent actions of extremists begin to take, uh, you know, because of either valid frustration or worse, evil intentions, and they use it as an excuse. And I just thought it was so interesting to see this in this book with Mystico and what's happening there because we're seeing it all over our planet and in every country. What I loved about this book is that, you know, it's showing the dangers of how you really kind of delegitimize your movement the moment you start to become violent. You know, you lose your message. And so you have to be very careful with whatever your message is, how you say it, why you say it, and what the actions are behind it. And Mm. because for everybody else, you know, the moment that message gets vulgar or violent or demeaning, people tune you out. Mm. And so it was just really interesting to see that. Um, happening on Mystico and it I mean I'm just watching the news before we start recording it's happening here in the yeah. United States it's happening all over the world on both sides extremists <laughs> in Paris as we saw mm-hmm. and just demonstrations yeah absolutely the the thing that struck me too was um, you know there might have been kind of legitimate issues and legitimate gripes and that sort of thing but it was really the moment that the leader of this movement movement uh, took it to an irrational place, and you know, right right towards the end, when you know his crew is saying, "Oh, we can, I can shut it down from here," or whatever. He says, "I don't want to shut it down. You know, I want, I want to explode and, and you know, take take this part of space with us." And you know, that's really when his followers, you know, even his closest followers kind of looked at him and were like okay what's going on here this is this is insane you know and you know things can come from a legitimate place with legitimate aims or ideas behind it but yeah extreme violence or irrationality just really drives all of that out and shows what it's really about at its core you know when someone is using violence to promote their aims sometimes it's just about the violence and not about 
you know, their, their supposed cause. Uh, so that was really interesting to see play out here. And yeah, it felt very familiar, like you say. Well, and what's so interesting about that, because it it's also about what any member of any group, how they say something and how they respond, you know. And I, I think um, when we look at movements throughout history, it was one of the things that made, I think, the the way that Martin Luther King and his followers demonstrated, you know, it wasn't through violence and it was through wonderfully poetic and prophetic words, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that inspired change. Uh, I think there's a big difference. So I'm, I'm with you there. Um, It's, uh, it's scary and, and it's, because we see that today of people being so frustrated that it's easy for them to fall into fanatical leanings, you know, in the same way we, we saw that, you know, in the 30s uh, with, with Germany. And so uh, the dangers that our world faces by, by not facing up to when it's really evil and the other evils in society that we can tackle, you know, uh, talking about, um, you know, relations between races, talking about, uh, poverty, uh, talking about all of these things in a way that is beneficial to all those affected and all of those, inadvertently responsible and all those blatantly responsible i mean just <laughs> yeah and, and the problem is is when everything becomes so charged with such emotion it's difficult to have good discussion you know but outrage if not tempered just turns into fanaticism Absolutely. And that's the danger, you know, because we, if we really want things to change, we have to be able to sit down at the table together and talk. And that's what Star Trek is all about, you know, in, in so many ways, about finding a way to sit down at the table and talk. And, and that's what this book was so cool in doing. Klingons and the Federation, two mortal, bitter enemies, being able to finally sit down at the table and talk. And the seeds are already planted here. And God, this book is good. So... Um, what would you rate this one as we've been talking through and all these things I've been trying to think through my head what I want to rate this one but where does this one place for you well you know as I've said uh, I haven't read the final book in this series yet but of of the ones we've read so far uh, this is most certainly the most well-written one and you know uh, I think you'd mentioned it was the longest one as well, and really the best story to it, for sure. Uh, so this one rates really high with me. Um, I would probably have to give it probably four and a half subspace weapons, but used in a good purpose <laughs> out of five. Oh, man. Um, I'm right there with you. This is the best book so far. Out of this Mere Anarchy series, I absolutely adore just about everything that it does. Um, you know, no book is perfect, but this one is is near perfect. This is 4.75 Enterprise and Klingon ship maneuvers out of five. So this is really wow. good stuff. <laughs> I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, again, what, what I love about this series is that you can sit down and read each one of these in just a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And this one feels like such a good, complete story. But now it makes me want to go watch Star Trek VI. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, me too. Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite eras of Star Trek is that late movie era. Well, <laughs> okay, Star Trek VI, cause Star Trek V's. Hey, Star Trek V is awesome. <laughs> Star Trek V is awesome. But that's a whole uh, other podcast. Star Trek V is a bad movie with some really good moments <laughs> in it. <laughs> that's as far as I'm willing to go. 
Well, Dan, I love um, that the fact that we've been through this series. We're almost done. We're going to be completing this series by the end of the year, so that's really exciting. And we'll have wrapped up the Deep Space Nine uh, relaunch as well. Um, so a lot of things coming to an end here on Literary Treks as we wrap up the year. But I'm just excited. It's been a great year uh, of Star Trek books and you know, kind of thinking uh, along the lines of what we'll do next year. Um, you and I have some th- uh, some thoughts of, of maybe where we want to go. Um, but that'll be coming down the road, so definitely stay tuned to Literary Treks for many years to come. Yeah, Matthew, I mean, you know, just even looking at the 2016 new book schedule, uh, we've got some really, really great stuff coming up this year. Uh, stuff that, you know, without even having read it, I'm really excited to talk about. So, uh, you know, I can't wait to see what's coming in the next year. And like you say, for years to come, uh, let's never stop this Star Trek book train. (laughs) I never want to get off. (laughs) Well, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, especially with a new series coming in a couple of years. Uh, But from what we know of the 50th anniversary and from the covers we got, we talked about in the news today. Gosh, amazing stuff. So uh, I want to thank really quickly our patreon associate producers it's because of these people that literary treks does come to you each week will win ken trip brandon shamatula and bruce gibson all of these men have gone to patreon.com and helped make sure that the network and literary trek specifically comes to you each week now the reason they did that is because we are a listener-supported network and because of the support of listeners like them we are able to make sure that the content, the quality of the content of all of Trek FM comes to you free of ads, free of anything like that. We just want to bring you great content. Christopher Jones, our creator, just set up patron.zone, which is a special place only for patrons at $5 a month or more. You get early access to content, some really fun exclusive content, and so much more. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see all the great perks that we have for you and find out how you can become part of the team and making sure that this content keeps coming to you. Now I did want to mention, Dan, before we go as well, that we do have a brand new Trek FM store where you can buy merchandise your t-shirts, your coffee mug, I mean, all sorts of great stuff from great things around Trek FM. In fact, you can't tell right now, Dan, but I am wearing the Word Cloud shirt under my sweatshirt right now, uh, (laughs) featuring the Enterprise A. Uh, So I'm very excited about that. Make sure you check that out at trek.fm slash store. That is uh, my absolute favorite design, by the way. I, I saw that one, fell in love. I want one. (laughs) They're beautiful. Well, it can be yours. So hopefully uh, somebody (laughs) will wink, 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 get one for you for Christmas. Wink, wink, wink. (laughs) You you said it. I didn't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe maybe a devoted listener or secret admirer, Dan. You never know. Those Andorians, I, I hear they like Canadians. They're pretty aggressive, too, so I don't think it would keep a secret admiration very long. That's true. (laughs) Well, Dan, when you're not fending off secret Andorian admirers, where can we find you? (laughs) Man, I'm just fending them off left and right. It's crazy. (laughs) Andorian fight scenes all over the place. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Well, you can find me online. Uh, My website is www.treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklitreviews and on Twitter at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And I'm on Instagram. My username there is Kurtrats47. And Matthew, when you're not leading peace envoys to the Klingons at the behest of the Federation president, uh, where can we find you? Oh man, that is, this, these peace talks are taking forever, but they seem to be going well. Um, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter tweeting about it at MattRushing02. You can find me on Instagram taking pictures of it at MRushing. You can also find Trek FM on Instagram as well. I do the orb with Christopher Jones, 
we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. And I also do the 602 Club, which is our general geek show here on the network where we talk about all things geeky, but things that don't have to do with Star Trek. So anything from TV shows that are geeky, like The Flash or Arrow, Shield, all that kind of stuff. We've got new things, old things. You know, we've done um, movies like The Pirates of the Caribbean or some things you may have never even heard of, like Sky Captain, all the way to the brand new films coming out like We'll be talking, of course, about The Force Awakens. So check all of that out at the 602 Club. And you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>